bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Welcome to the first episode of the Round Canada Podcast in 2023. So I'm going to kick off the new year by wrapping up some stories from 2022. I think one of the big stories that 2022 ended on was the United Nations conference that was held in Montreal uh, from the 7th to 19th of December. So the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity has a gathering called the Conference of the Parties. And the one in Montreal was the, the 15th conference of the United Nations biodiversity group. Governments from around the world came to Montreal. Uh, There was about 12,000 people and just under 200 countries, governments uh, represented. And they came together to agree on a new set of goals that would guide global action through 2030 to halt and reverse nature loss. This is kind of an interesting concept of what's been going on by the United Nations and all of the governments of the world to reverse biodiversity loss. So the COP conference number one was in 1994. The last one COP 14 was in Egypt in 2018. They seem to kind of run every couple of years to to the last span here was was four years. In 2000, the governments of the world had what they called an extraordinary conference of the parties, and that was called EXCOP1, and that was in 2000. They had a second extraordinary conference of the parties in 2020. So those were kind of like emergency sessions to deal with biodiversity crises, you know, in in the world. The COP15 conference kind of ended with what I read in the media sort of being, you know, landmark, landmark agreements and a landmark plan. The plan includes that, that, that the parties agreed to, the plan includes concrete measures to halt and reverse nature loss, including putting 30% of the planet and 30% of degraded ecosystems under protection by 2030. So essentially, all of the governments of the world have, or the governments that are party to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, have agreed to bring the protected areas up to 30% of the planet by 2030. Shortly after the conference, um, British Columbia's premier made an announcement that the province would be upping its protected areas, which cover about 15% of BC to 30% of the province. Now, British Columbia has a lot of endangered species, imperiled species, about 700 globally imperiled species are in this province and that's more than any other province or territory in Canada. British Columbia also has the highest number of globally threatened ecosystems. There are about 88 globally threatened ecosystems and British Columbia also ranks number one in Canada for endemic species. Around a hundred species of wildlife and plants and invertebrates only naturally occur in British Columbia and nowhere else in the world. But British Columbia has 700 species and 88 ecosystems that are threatened and no endangered species legislation. The NDP government promised back in 2017-2016 that if elected, they would create an endangered species legislation for the province. However, they never followed through on that, and they're in their second second term. This whole concept of protecting biodiversity around the world, terrestrial and marine biodiversity, 
by this 30% context concept, protect 30% of the oceans and the land. And I kind of, you know, I kind of question that. There's two parts I question here. One, the United Nations and the countries that are part of the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity have been meeting on this very issue of the decline of biodiversity since 1994. They're not really getting anywhere globally. Each time they meet, um, they're setting new actions through to the future to reverse nature loss. Every year we hear reports of losses to biodiversity and the number of species that are threatened with extinction keep, keep going up. So one, I don't know how effective this United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity is and the COP conferences. They just don't seem to be doing anything, like reversing anything. The other part of the agreement that the governments of the world came to about this 30% concept, protecting 30%. Um, so that would be putting into like parks and protected areas. And I don't know, I question that. I question that as a concept for biological diversity protection because we've broken up the earth into ecosystems and units and we draw lines around things but really you know the entire planet functions as a single entity you know as as a super organism as as a single ecosystem if you want to put it that way to think that we're going to protect biological diversity on the entire planet by only protecting 30% of the planet, meaning the highest standards of conservation protection only on 30% of the planet, I, I can't see how that's going to result in reversing nature loss over the next decade. I can't see that concept working by itself if, if it's not coupled with extensive changes to how we treat the ecosystem, the planet, outside of parks and protected areas. And this is a concept of parks and protected areas that, that I sort of, in a way, don't like, is that we set a piece of land aside thinking we're just going to leave it and let nature go about its business unaffected by humans. And then next door, we have the quote-unquote, the working landscape, the industrial landscape, the urban landscape, where we can intensively farm and harvest and develop and live on the other 70%. And to think that that model is of protecting 30% is gonna protect biodiversity if we don't change how 70% of the planet is being treated and managed and how conservation of species is still paramount on the quote unquote working landscape. I can't see this benefiting biodiversity conservation into the future. I kind of think of the planet like I would my body. Every part of my body is important there are a few pieces I could get by without, you know, I could still survive in, you know, in a, in a form that may alter how I experience life or what I can and can't do, but I could probably get, get by with a few missing pieces. There are some parts of my body, which I couldn't survive should it disappear or stop working my heart, my lungs, my brain. So this concept of saying, hey, pick 30% of your body and really, really look after it. And then 70% just carry on trashing the shit out of the 70% of your body. What's, gonna, what's your overall health going to be like in 10 years? What's your longevity? What's your life expectancy going to be? I don't think it's going to be as good as a 100% whole body concept. Knowing that if you were in an accident and you lost an arm or you lost your ability to see or hear, you could still live and still function. But overall, 
you know, quality of life, the longevity of your life and your health from what you started with, you know, as, as a good body, if you only purposely looked after 30% to the highest possible level of healthcare, where would you be? What would your body look like in 10 years? That's what I'm worried about for the planet is looking at the planet in this 30, 70% concept saying protect 30% to the highest level of biodiversity conservation, but business as usual status quo on the other 70%. I don't think that bodes well for the planet. The direction that the United Nations and the Conference of Parties have taken since 1994 in these landmark agreements that happen every two to four years don't really seem to be making things better. So I don't know. I, I think this whole approach to biodiversity conservation, we need to look at everything as 100% and treat everything to the best that we can, which still includes people living on the land, farming on the land, removing natural resources, but in a sustainable way, and just think of living on the planet as being sustainable at 100% on every corner of the planet, rather than just 30%. So kind of along the lines of biodiversity loss, just before Christmas, some information was, was released um, from studies that were being conducted by a joint partnership between the government of Nunavut and the government of Manitoba on polar bears in Canada's western Hudson Bay region. So kind of the southern edge of the, the Arctic region of Canada. Um, so world famous polar bear population in the Hudson Bay area and Churchill. And so the scientists that were doing research on the polar bears uh, late last year had found out that female bears and their bear cubs are having a particularly hard time. Their survival has not been that good. In 2016, the, the count of polar bears in the western Hudson Bay region was 842. In 2021, it was only 618 total bears. That's roughly a 26% reduction in five years, or roughly the polar bear population in the Hudson Bay area has been declining by about 5% per year. Dr. Andrew DeRoche from the University of Alberta um, in Edmonton, polar bear researcher, was quoted in um, some of the news stories on the decline of polar bears in western Hudson Bay, and he actually said um, that that decline is actually a lot larger than what he would have expected those numbers to be. Scientists are saying that the Arctic has warmed twice as fast recently than it has, you know, in the past. That's causing the sea ice to breaking up earlier in the year and taking longer to freeze in the fall. Polar bear populations are tied to the ice pack forming on Hudson Bay. And farther north in the Arctic, the whole circumpolar region, polar bears populations are linked to sea ice. When the sea ice takes longer to form and it goes off earlier, polar bears essentially have the shortened time frame where they can get out on the sea ice and hunt and hunt seals. So they're having trouble finding food. They're not getting the calories because of the shortened ice season and that's affecting females and their offspring and leading to higher rates of mortality, less recruitment, and of course a declining population. The Arctic ecosystem, the food chain is fascinating. It's very different than the food chain in any other place of the world and any other, other ecosystem that, I, that I'm familiar with. And it's actually a very, very short food chain. So from like algae to phytoplankton to fish to mammals to polar bears, like, like it's literally the food chain is that short. It involves five or six kind of steps in the food chain from the tiniest species that are 
capturing the sun's energy and turning it into food for the rest of the food chain, that's a very short food chain. And interestingly enough, that's actually tied to the ice itself. The entire way of which algae and the phytoplankton microorganisms grow on the bottom of the ice and then things feed on that and reach the polar bear uh, is a really fascinating food chain of how important the Arctic sea ice is to the top of the food chain in the Arctic. And if you're interested in knowing this, you know, learning about this a little bit better uh, from an expert, uh, Curtis and I had Dr. Andrew DeRoger on the Hunter Conservationist podcast the year we started back in 2019. So if you want to go back and find episode nine of the Hunter Conservationist podcast, um, you'll learn all about the Arctic food chain from Dr. Andrew Jaroche and um, why the decline in sea ice um, is devastating for polar bears in Canada's Arctic. Coyotes were kind of a, a, a hot topic in 2022 across Canada. Coyote attacks in urban areas and parks and everywhere from British Columbia to Alberta had issues with coyotes in Calgary and Edmonton all the way across to Ottawa and Toronto. A paper was recently published by a scientist, wildlife ecologist from Ohio State University uh, named Stan Gert. Dr. Gert is heads up the Urban Coyote Research Project um, that monitors coyotes living in the, the city of Chicago in Illinois. And he was involved in a study of trying to understand the death of a 19-year-old woman in Cape Breton's Highland National Park in 2009. Taylor Mitchell is the only documented fatality in North America caused by a coyote. Shortly after Taylor was attacked and killed by a coyote in the National Park, the number of incidents, coyote-human incidents in the park started to increase. And Gert was one of the scientists that helped lead an investigation into that attack um, sponsored by Parks Canada and the Nova Scotia Department of Lands and Forestry. Dr. Gerd and his colleagues between 2011 and 2013 collared about two dozen juvenile coyotes and they started studying them on top of sort of the work they were doing investigating uh, the fatal attack in 2009. They recently released the findings of the studies and the investigation into the TAC and kind of came up with some conclusions about what led to that fatal attack. What they found was in Cape Breton Highlands National Park, the coyotes around the time of the attack were increasingly forced to rely on moose in their diet. There was a unique combination of heavy snow and high winds and extreme temperatures that created this environment in the wintertime, which was really inhospitable to small mammals, rodents, that the coyotes usually hunted on. So I gather from that what I'm picturing is lots of snow, heavy snow, high winds, um, crusted surfaces, and just the coyotes just couldn't hunt you know, their normal mice and voles and those type of um, food species underneath the snow. And so they were starving and they had to turn to moose and scavenging uh, and even hunting moose. The scientists said that the coyotes likely became accustomed to seeing larger prey as food because they were in this deprived state of their normal food not being available. They turn to hunting moose. It's likely that the coyote involved in the fatal attack had perceived a lone hiker human as a prey. 
In a statement uh, in an interview, Dr. Gert um, said this uh, prohibition on hunting and trapping in the park also removed a human threat. It's a big area for these coyotes to live in and never have a negative experience with humans. And Gert said that also leads to the logical assumption that we're making, which is that it's not hard for these animals to test to see whether or not people are potential prey to them. So in a nutshell, coyotes, because of the lack of hunting, the lack of trapping, they didn't see people as threats. They had a severe winter where they started to hunt incredibly large prey species and their lack of fear of people and the fact that they were becoming accustomed to hunting moose, um, they saw people as a prey and um, that's what they figure precipitated the fatal attack in 2009. So the, the reason I covered this story is, is I, th I think this is quite interesting when we start looking at this whole issue of urban coyotes and what to do with them and the increasing number of, of coyote human attacks. Um, even though there's been no fatal attacks, people have been attacked and bitten and uh, chased and pets and stuff taken. Um, but, but it's really interesting to look at the investigation results of the fatality because when is this going to happen again? And if people are perpetuating this environment where coyotes don't see humans as a threat and some severe winter condition comes along or decline in rodent populations where the coyotes start to have to pursue larger game animals, deer, moose, elk. Will we ever create a situation again where we would have a human fatality from a coyote because this whole pattern or sequence of events reoccurs. Coyotes not fearful of people, learning to hunt big animals, and then seeing people as prey species. It's definitely something I hope that folks in the coyote conservation world uh, have on their radar screen. Now, along the same vein of coyotes and human-coyote conflict, the city of Ottawa was having problems with aggressive coyotes in its Riverside Park. And so late last fall, they uh, closed the park down and did some trapping. And they caught and removed three coyotes out of the park. They were done their trapping by the 4th of November. Then a person was in the park and came across a coyote that was caught in a neck snare. And it was not dead. That kind of led to a public uproar about the use of snares in the park, which the Capital Regional District or the Capital Commission for the park, the adjacent conservation property owner and the City of Ottawa all said that they didn't permit or allow the use of snares to catch the coyotes. They were done trapping then people started to think that somebody was going in and taking matters into their own hand and setting snares for coyotes and this one was caught in a snare that did not quickly and humanely dispatch it and somebody found it they actually videotaped it um, the coyotes just standing standing there so an organization in eastern canada called coyote watch canada kind of pulled all this together and is calling for an end to lethal trapping in the city of Ottawa of coyotes and promoting coexistence of humans and coyotes in Riverside Park area and other urban places in 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 and around Ottawa. Yeah, these two stories kind of link together. We've heard this concept of coexisting with coyotes in Stanley Park in British Columbia. Not so much in Alberta. Um, the sentiment there from the stories I've seen before were kind of like, yeah, if they're a problem, just get rid of them. Um, and then, and then you know, back east, um, there's been more of an ethos of, you know, coexisting with coyotes uh, in and around uh, urban green spaces. So I relate this back to the previous story 
about whether coexistence is setting up, you know, the stage for a future event where coyotes end up having no choice but to be hunting larger prey. Uh, and then you got people wandering around in these in these parkside areas with coyotes that are not scared of people because no hunting, no trapping, and something again happens in the way of a fatal attack. I hope someone's studying that or, you know, are looking into it or developing some predictive models on when and what it would take for such a scenario to unfold in another part of another part of Canada. The other aspect of the coexistence with coyote story um, or narrative that kind of I find curious is we hear groups talk about coexisting with wildlife, whether they're urban deer or coyotes or bears. But the conflict generally happens, not always, but generally happens fairly often in green spaces, parks, protected areas, where people are recreating with their pets and this is also pretty good wildlife habitat. The curious part I find about this concept of coexisting with the wildlife living in these green spaces, parks, and protected areas is that coexistence never seems to include the idea that humans and pets should stay out of these parks and protected areas and green spaces. The concept is people have a right to recreate in these green spaces, parks, and protected areas and basically intermingle with a species like a coyote that leads to human coyote conflict of which most of the time a human is either injured scared or a coyote ends up being killed it would seem to me that if people and pets were not in the areas where the coyotes are living would be the best way to reduce coyote-human conflict. And that would probably be the best form of coexistence would be segregation. But that doesn't meet the goals and objectives of humans who want to use the coyote's habitat in these green spaces and parks and protected areas. So, yeah, it's a, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one for sure. Should people stay out of parks and protected areas should they be only for wildlife or should they be primarily for humans of which we either have to coexist meaning accept the risks that a dangerous wildlife could hurt or harm a human being or do we allow these areas to be exclusively for wildlife and their benefit and remove people and pets from their home and allow them to coexist in close proximity with people but virtually never see anybody. I don't know. What would you vote for if you lived in the city of Ottawa? Remove the coyotes from Riverside Park because it's a people park or remove people from Riverside Park and make it habitat just for coyotes. Now, speaking of wildlife human conflict this was a pretty interesting story coming out of montreal a flock of turkeys in an area of montreal have taken up residence on the playground of a daycare so the turkeys are coming into the playground and roosting in the big trees at nighttime so turkeys fly up into a roost about half an hour before dark and they come down just shortly after daybreak in the morning, do all of their feeding and, and stuff on the ground, but they roost in a tree at nighttime because that's where they're protected from ground predators. While they're sitting in the roost, they are digesting the food that they consumed in the latter part of the day, and they're pooping. Roost trees that are used by turkeys a lot have a lot of poop underneath of them. It's one of the ways you can actually find a roost tree is the big piles of poop underneath the tree. Well, that poop is in the playground. And so playground uh, owners and operators and the parents of the, of the kids um, don't like this situation of the turkeys 
also using the playground and then pooping on it. Even though experts have said the turkey poop is not that big of a threat to people, it doesn't have much in the way of viruses or bacterias that could be really detrimental to human. But the concept of poop on the ground, you know, where kids could get in contact with it is concerning to, to the daycare people and to the parents. So the daycare operation wants these turkeys captured and moved far, far away. In one of the stories that I read about this, the wild turkeys were referred to as an annoyance. So contrary to the narrative of coyotes, learning to coexist with them, the wild turkey doesn't get the benefit of a coexistence narrative. Can kids on a playground coexist with a wild turkey living in and around their playground? The tolerance doesn't seem to be there. The narrative for coexisting with wildlife doesn't apply to a turkey. Uh, I love wild turkeys. I love hunting them. I love them as a species. I think they're fascinating, um, complex birds. I have a, a lot of respect for them. I want them to be managed and conserved and protected. And But to a lot of other people, they don't like wild turkeys. And one of the biggest turnoffs is because they don't have the feathered head. They have the skin head a lot like the vultures. And so their, their cuddly factor is a lot less than say something like a coyote. So consequently in this situation, we don't see a narrative of coexistence with the wild turkeys. We, you know, we see them as an annoyance and they need to be moved. We can't coexist with them on the playground. They got to go. So kind of bookends, you know, turkey at one end. Canada geese are like that. I've covered those stories. People seem to have less tolerance for the Canada geese, um, more tolerance for coyotes, bears, and deer. So is it a bird thing? Do people in Canada not like birds? Or... Is it something else like the bears and coyotes and deer have big brown eyes with eyelashes and they're more cuddly and cute? Maybe they're more um, deer, bears, and coyotes are more pronounced in stories, Disney films, those sorts of things versus wild turkeys and, and Canada geese. Are they often portrayed as as um, sentinel beings that we should coexist with or just an annoyance. All right, switching gears. So one of the huge topics that we were covering uh, in different areas of the social media towards the end of 2022 was the amendment to Bill C-21, which was the handgun ban um, legislation that the federal government tabled last year. They tabled a, an, um, uh, an amendment to that bill in November, which then included uh, quite a few shotguns and centerfire rifles, uh, even 22 calibers, that were added to the list of firearms that the federal government wants to include as prohibited weapons should Bill C-21 pass in the House of Commons. So quite a bit of stuff uh, out there from a lot of different organizations uh, about this. One of the big stories around this that I'm just going to touch on here is a number of First Nations in Canada have stood up and are speaking out against Bill C-21's amendment that is including hunting rifles and hunting shotguns. One of the first ones that came out and expressed a concern that Bill C-21 was unduly affecting, impacting the constitutional rights of First Nations to hunt by banning certain types of hunting firearms was the Silkateen First Nation in British Columbia. Then shortly after that, the Assembly of First Nations 
um, special chiefs assembly that took place in Ottawa passed an emergency resolution that was opposing Bill C-21 and its attempt to include regular hunting firearms in the list of prohibited firearms. So that's an interesting twist to Bill C-21 is to see the First Nations step in and talk about infringement on their constitutional rights to hunt. So it'll be interesting to follow this story in 2023 to see where the federal government takes that aspect of Bill C-21 and the hunting rifles and shotguns that are currently on the list to be prohibited. Now, this national debate is going on about firearms. The Liberal government is saying they're banning all these firearms that have the capability to kill the most amount of people in the, in the shortest period of time. The other side is saying that taking firearms from law-abiding citizens is not affecting crime when crime is being committed with firearms that are coming into the country illegally. So, so you get this debate going on, um, this kind of like responsible gun ownership, you know, type debate and shouldn't be taking firearms away from um, fire, legal firearms owners in the country. And then a story pops up where something to do with hunting and a hunter and the use of a firearm that was not good that kind of brings a shadow on this argument about responsible gun ownership. A turkey hunter in Halliburton was fined late last year $15,000 after the person discharged their shotgun while turkey hunting um, in May and the pellets came down out of the air and hit a woman by her house that was on the adjacent property. Conservation officers that investigated um, that whole event also found out that the hunter um, had a number of offenses, um, firearm and license and hunting offenses, including hunting turkeys without a license, uh, hunting within 400 meters of baits uh, on numerous occasions. The hunter was ultimately found guilty of care carelessly discharging a firearm while hunting. Uh, including and in addition to the other uh, hunting offenses that I mentioned and received a $15,000 fine and a 10-year hunting license suspension. So, so even, there, even though there was a bunch of other poaching-related things to this, to this hunter and the fact that, you know, a story crops up in the middle of this national debate about, you know, uh, responsible gun owners uh, versus um, banning, uh, you know, certain firearms that can be used in crime it, it's just it's unfortunate those things happen i don't see that this story of the turkey hunter kind of got a tremendous amount of traction nationally so i'm kind of glad it didn't get thrown in there too much but it, it it just seems to never fail that there's some kind of you know story like this and this this you know other story pops out where you just kind of like you know you do the the face plant into the palms of your hands going like oh my gosh why did why did this happen so it's probably not gonna have a huge bearing on on uh bill c21 and whether or not you know these hunting shotguns and firearms get removed off the list but i just thought i'd talk about it because it was a little bit of an unfortunate timing of the court case that found this hunter um, guilty uh, for the carelessly, carelessly discharging of firearm while, while hunting. Now, I don't know how far away the hunter was from the person that got struck by the pellets. Um, the person that was hit by the pellets was not hurt or injured. Um, the What I gleaned from the story is the pellets just were you know at the maximum extent of their range and just sort of like hit somebody like a hailstorm kind of thing like but i don't know exactly you know how far it was away 
the reason I kind of bring this up is I kind of find that a bit interesting. A number of years ago, I was spring turkey hunting in an area um, on public land, and there was an adjacent farm beside me and private land. And so I would always be like on the outskirts in the forest of the, and the turkeys would kind of come and go off the private land. And I gathered that the owner of this farm and this property, one did not like turkeys because lots of mornings I was there, I would hear the landowner shooting. I'd hear turkeys gobbling or see them way off on the property or whatever. And then just all these shots from the landowner. And I always thought the landowner was just trying to scare the turkeys off of his land. Then one year I, I got a turkey, um, you know, well off the property, the landowner heard my shotgun shot. And as soon as I shot the turkey and it went down, um, the, you know, the boom, I heard his tractor fire up at the other end of kind of the field by the, by the buildings. I went and got my turkey and I was on public land, went over and kind of like sat down in the bushes and the tractor drove right to the end of the field closest to where I was in the forest. And the fella jumped out of the tractor and started discharging a shotgun, like in my direction just randomly couldn't see me. I was, but just blasting this shotgun. I ended up reporting it to the RCMP and the RCMP asked me how far away the person was from where I was. And I said, I estimated it to be about 60 yards. And he said, there's not a whole lot we could do there because at 60 yards, we don't consider a 12 gauge to be at a lethal distance. So it's not really um, a threat to my safety to have someone discharge a 12 gauge shotgun at you from about 60 yards away. So I was like, really? Okay. Um, anyways, uh, it resulted in another incident where he used a 22 and I was laying flat on the ground as I had 22 shells ricketing past me through the forest and the branches and stuff. And Needless to say, I don't hunt out there uh, much anymore, but that's why in this story, I was kind of interested in knowing like how far away this turkey hunter was when these rogue shotgun pellets um, struck a person on the adjacent property because uh, I was told 60 yards is, uh, is okay <laughs> to be shot at with a shotgun. So anyways, maybe if you know the story better than I do, you can tell me how far away the turkey hunter was and in 2021, chronic wasting disease was first detected in the province of Manitoba. Unfortunately, last year, they had a couple more cases uh, from hunter-submitted samples that were tested positive for CWD. The province then expanded, once they learned of that, they expanded the area from which this, the hunted deer had come from uh, and removed like allowed hunters to take more deer as I understood it and to do like a more intensive uh, sampling from the area that the uh, positive deer came from last last fall. I don't know whether or not they picked up more uh, cases in Manitoba. Any Everything I've seen, it was only just the two more deer that were proved positive this year. So unfortunate for Manitoba, um, you know, that, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, you know, like a couple of deer in 20, 2021, a couple of deer in 2022. But that's kind of how the pattern of CWD unfolds in a new jurisdiction is it's one and two and a couple and then it's 10 and then it's 50, then it's 100 and, it, you know, and it, and it just snowballs. And the, the um, prevalence rate increases in the population from deer to deer contact. It seems like Manitoba's in that early, early stages, uh, whether or not they're going to see that exponential rise in prevalence in the deer population as it spreads through Manitoba. I pray that it doesn't. 
Um, but that's, you know, kind of what everywhere else in North America has seen as these low detection levels. Uh, and then just sort of this exponential increase as it, as it spreads through the deer population. British Columbia, which is still a uh, CWD-free province in Canada, did not have any detectable cases of CWD harvested by hunters in 2022. The number of samples were down from 1,100 to just under 800 deer samples submitted in the southeastern corner of British Columbia where I live, where it's mandatory um, to submit samples. And they were down three, 400 samples um, from 2021, but with the ones that they did get in 2022, there was no CWD found. So BC continues to be um, quote unquote CWD free even though CWD has expanded in Alberta that's literally there were deer taken by hunters last year that were less than 10, 10 kilometers away from the BC-Alberta border so um, some people just say it's a matter of time before it gets here to BC so switching over to salmon so researchers are in the state of Alaska are very concerned about the declining Chinook salmon population um, that their salmon fishing industry, recreational and commercial depend on. So they're going to do research on Chinook salmon and follow them on their migration next year, which means they're going to follow them from Alaska waters into the Yukon. The Chinook salmon population that comes into Alaska their run is into rivers in the Yukon and it is one of the longest salmon migration runs in the world. What's happening is tens of thousands of, of salmon are disappearing on this migration each year. Canada and Alaska have an agreement, an international agreement, that about 42,000 Chinook salmon need to cross into the Yukon on the migratory run in order for that Chinook salmon population that spans both countries to be sustainable, for the population to be sustainable and to sustain a commercial and recreational fishery. In 2022, only 11,000 fish were monitored to have crossed out of Alaska into the Yukon on this run. So some 30,000 fish less entered the Yukon, which are then heading into the upper reaches of their spawning grounds um, to perpetuate the species that will then flow back out, you know, to Alaska. They're going to radio, the Alaskan researchers are going to radio tag about 500 fish and then follow them all the way through Alaska and into the Yukon uh, this coming year to, to try to ascertain what's happening and where are all of these salmon disappearing between Alaska, the ocean, and when they hit the rivers and into the Yukon. Uh, where are these fish dying? Uh, why are they dying and where are they going? Because... There's only a fraction of the number that are reaching their spawning grounds in the Yukon. So last year I covered this story about a homeowner in Whistler, British Columbia that was investigated, pled guilty, and found guilty of purposely feeding, baiting black bears on their property in Whistler, BC. So the BC conservation officers had investigated this property owner in Whistler and found evidence over two consecutive summers that the landowner was buying apples, carrots, and pears, and eggs, and feeding bears. She had purchased, the landowner was, the owner was a, was a lady, and she had purchased 10 cases of apples, 50 pounds of carrots and pears, and up to 15 dozen eggs on a weekly basis, feeding bears. Uh, she pled guilty, and a court in British Columbia fined her $60,000 for that. It's, a, it's an offense under British Columbia's Wildlife Act to 
feed or or make available attractants to dangerous wildlife being bears cougars wolves or coyotes <clears throat> that's dangerous wildlife so she was fined sixty thousand uh, dollars for doing that the property owner in whistler appealed that fine uh, it was heard in a new court case by a new judge and the fine was reversed it was reduced from 60,000 to 10,500. The judge that heard the appeal said that the original sentence was out of line with the range of sentences imposed in other similar cases. Hmm. Case law. Now, what I find interesting is if we want to use monetary fines to deter people from feeding bears, and you need to up the fine level to increase the level of deterrence, then how do you actually do that if all of your cases were set at lower dollar values and the judges are not allowed to authorize higher fines in a guilty verdict? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. If you are and you're listening, how, how does case law the fine level in this situation. A little bit of reading I was doing was there are some tests about whether or not this was like extraordinary circumstances of which a judge would say yes that warranted a fine higher than other similar cases but in this situation the judge didn't find that those special conditions had actually taken place in this this violation. Um, yeah. 10500 is still a ton of money, unless you're like a multi-millionaire living in Whistler, B.C. that can afford 10 cases of apples, 50 pounds of carrots and pears, and 15 dozen eggs weekly to feed the bears. Maybe 10500 is not really much of a deterrent. Anyways, uh, we'll see what this person does. They might have um, 45000 free dollars to buy apples and carrots and pears and eggs uh, this coming season. A audit was released late last year by an environmental group in eastern Canada um, called Oceana Canada and they produce an audit every year of basically how the federal government's doing on protecting uh, marine stocks across Canada wild fish stocks across Canada and the overarching consensus of Oceana Canada's 22 22 fisheries audit is that Canada has done little to improve beleaguered fish stocks across the country. Last year, the federal government spent $120 million on programs to enhance and, and conserve fish stocks across the country. In the audit, Oceana Canada said 30% of the stocks that were surveyed in the audit were considered to be in the healthy zone. Um, the healthy zone is what the Department of Fisheries and Oceans considers sustainable for fishery. That's actually down from 34% of the stocks were considered in the healthy zone back in 2017. We've had a 4% decline in the number of stocks that are, have sustainable populations for fishing uh, in the last five years. Uh, Oceana Canada said that 15% of the fish stocks that were looked at in the audit are in the cautious zone where commercial harvesting should be reduced. 37% of the stocks, uh, the status of them is uncertain. Researchers actually don't know what, what's going on, where, where the stocks are at. The audit said 17% of the stocks that were looked at in the audit are in the critical zone where serious harm is occurring to the fish stocks. Of all of the stocks that Oceana Canada looked at for the audit, it said less than 20% of the critically depleted stocks have plans to rebuild them, but they continue to have high fishing pressure that risks their recovery. So only 20% of the fish stocks across Canada that are considered critical um, have any type of plan or measures in place to recover those fish stocks. This is an interesting number. 
Last year, the federal government spent $120 million trying to recover fish stocks. In the spring of last year, opponents to the federal government's gun buyback program figured that it was going to cost Canada $756 million to buy back the guns that were prohibited just under Bill C-71, which was the original ban on military-style assault weapons, air quotes. So almost a billion dollars to buy back guns from legal gun owners, but $120 million on fish stocks, of which less than 20% of the critical fish stocks have any type of plan or commitment to rebuild them. Crazy. A little bit on whales. In the latter part of 2022, four dead humpback whales were found uh, up and down uh, the coast in British Columbia. Two of them were confirmed to have died from trauma. They figure was from being struck by ships. So these were humpback whales that travel uh, up and down the coast of British Columbia. Normally, when whales are struck by ships, I had read that they sink. So researchers uh, really have no idea of the impact of shipping traffic on humpback whale mortality because most of them sink. The four whales that were found uh, up and down the coast uh, in the latter part of the of 2022 were floating or washed up on shore. So this was a really unique situation for researchers that do necropsies on, on dead whales um, to actually get their hands on them um, to, to determine the cause of, of mortality because they said most of them sink. Interestingly enough, it's like, you know, how you think, how, how does a ship hit a whale, right? Apparently, these humpback whales sleep just under the surface of the water, and they also nurse just under the surface of the water. So they're literally, they just sit there suspended while they're sleeping or while the calf is nursing just under the surface of the water. They're not swimming. They're not moving. And so it's kind of like a deer that goes out and decides to sleep in the middle of the highway or a bear that decides to lay in the middle of the highway on its back and nurse its cubs it's in the line of fire it's not moving and doesn't have a chance to get out of the way so that that kind of blows me away you know these animals as big as as humpback whales literally just like bob around in the ocean sleeping or nursing and you know these big ships going back and forth and crunch and kills them Uh, sad story then Late, late in 2022, a, um, a sperm whale uh, was found off Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, um, dead, washed up on the shore. And in the necropsy, uh, scientists found 150 kilograms of fishing gear, rope and nets and everything in its stomach. And that's what they determined had killed this sperm whale. Ghost gear is what they call that stuff, stuff that uh, nets and ropes and everything that bust off of the commercial fishing um, fleets and just float around in the ocean uh, apparently look like something that sperm whales like to eat. And this guy ended up with 150 kgs uh, that killed him or her. Sad, sad story there. However, the North Atlantic right whale, uh, so this is one where they've had a lot of problems off the Atlantic coast of Canada of ships hitting the North Atlantic right whales uh, around the mouth of the St. Lawrence at certain times of the migration. So far this year, researchers have counted the North Atlantic right whales as having the population that exists, that moves back and forth from Canada to the U.S., have eight new calves so far this calving season. And the calving season for the North Atlantic, right, runs from November to April, mid-November to mid-April. So, so far they've counted eight new calves. Last year was a record number of calves for the North Atlantic, right, population. And there was 13 in the total breeding season. So early in the calving season this year, they've uh, already counted eight they estimate there's fewer than 340 North Atlantic right whales left, and less than 100 of those are females 
that are rearing young. Numbers like 13 and 8 uh, that seem kind of low, it's a pretty big deal for the conservation of the North Atlantic right whale. So hopefully we see more calves this year and hopefully we see fewer ship strikes and more of those calves living to um, give birth to their own calves. Now, this final story, I don't know if this sums up 2022 when it comes to wildlife science conservation and responsible hunting in Canada, but it it kind of tops my list. So Banff National Park, oldest national park in Canada. It was originally named Rocky Mountain National Park. Set aside for originally for commercial purposes, um, the CP Hotel, the hot springs, the, the railroad across Canada was taking tourists, you know, to Rocky Mountain National Park. All of that morphed and evolved into the concept in Canada for national parks being preserves for wildlife, where wildlife can live naturally and be free from hunting and trapping and impacts of humans. I've covered a lot of stories about the impacts of our national parks on wildlife to high fencing to animals being run over on the roads and white grizzly bears being pursued and harassed by professional photographers to the point where uh, you know the parks officials are closing down large areas of the national parks um, to people stopping and viewing wildlife uh, what are some of the other stories Oh, no stopping areas. You're not allowed to drive through the national parks and some places of the mountain parks and stop and look at wildlife. You, you can be charged for stopping to admire the wildlife in a national park. <clears throat> um, culling wildlife, uh, sick and diseased animals in the spring around the town of Banff. I remember that story um, about parks officials sanitizing, you know, and removing um, starving animals uh, from around the town. People don't like to see that sort of stuff. I think our national parks in the Rocky Mountains, the mountain park groups, they have this precarious relationship between wildlife that are supposed to be preserved and free of human influence to the complete opposite of that in some cases. So this story is about the Columbia ground squirrel. And the town of Banff is struggling to deal with the Columbia, girls, Columbia ground squirrel population in the town cemeteries. <laughs> so these ground squirrels have taken up residence in the cemeteries and they're burrowing around under the ground. I don't think they're going down and gnawing on people that are buried in the cemetery. I don't think that's the issue. What the issue is, is they're building their underground cities and infrastructure in the cemeteries. And then the ground is sinking and the stone, the headstones, the granite headstones are tipping over and falling over and stuff because the ground underneath of them is caving in from the ground squirrels making all of their, their colonies and everything under the ground. This was a bad thing. Columbia ground squirrels native to the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia were not welcome in the cemeteries in Banff National Park. So the town captured 160 of the Columbia ground squirrels and they relocated them. So it's against parks policy to lethally remove the ground squirrels, either by trapping or poison. So they had to be live captured and they had to be relocated. There's around 2,000 people buried in one of the cemeteries. I think that's a cemetery. It's classified as a historic site in Canada in the National Park. And the very first grave dates back to the 1890s there. So that's where these ground squirrels have taken up residence. There's probably not a whole lot in the ground uh, to worry about anymore what the ground squirrels are doing down there but but i just kind of i find this interesting you know national parks when we coexist with wildlife and when we don't so the narrative here around the columbia ground squirrel and so keep in mind 
this concept of coexisting with coyotes, coexisting with bears. The Columbia ground squirrel in this situation in Banff were labeled as pesky rodents. And one naturalist that was uh, quoted in a news story I read kind of about this said, the town of Banff is going to have to trap and remove Columbia ground squirrels every year or this movement of 160 of them last year is not going to make any difference. Um, the naturalist said they're going to have to keep this up every year in order to quote-unquote win this battle. Here's a rodent. It's not as high profile as a coyote or a bear or a wolf, which are all the species that groups are promoting coexistence with. But now we have a ground squirrel, and it's a pesky rodent. And we're in a national park, which is its native range and habitat. And we don't want to coexist with it in the cemeteries. We are in a battle with it. And we're going to have to go to war against the ground squirrel every year in Banff if we wanted to keep the ground squirrels out from causing the ground to sink and the headstones um, tipped over. Kind of makes me think of Caddyshack and Bill Murray chasing the ground squirrel around. Um, I can eventually see some disgruntled uh, park city worker or whatever stuffing some dynamite down the holes and in the cemetery and that would make a great news story. Maybe I'll be covering that in um, the New Year's episode and for the end of 2023. But uh, you, you know the biggest thing I find interesting about this story and the other ones is just this philosophy about what, when, and where and which species of native wildlife across Canada that the prevailing narrative and ethos is coexisting with them versus the ones that society is intolerant of. And we see this completely different narrative of pesky rodents uh, win the battle. What was it for the wild turkeys in the daycare? Wild turkeys are an annoyance, quote unquote, an annoyance. Um, and they need to be moved far, far away, which was uh, what one of the news stories talked about. So just an interesting thing. I would personally find it pretty damn cool if I knew that my body was being dug up by wildlife and made use of, as opposed to just being dust in a jar on the mantle somewhere. <laughs> it's just, I'd rather go back to nature and I could think no better way of going back to nature by being made use of by wildlife. But however, the cemetery in a national park, wildlife aren't welcome. They're pesky and we need to get rid of them because they're not cute. Can't coexist with them. Bill Murray found that out. Can't coexist. Just got to get rid of them. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada and we'll see you in the next episode.